Welcome back to another episode of uh, Give Me Some Truth. We're very excited today. We've got uh, kind of a, a little bit different. We've got a guest uh, joining us via via Skype, uh, via uh, Zoom, actually, I stand corrected. Uh, in the room with me today are my fellow international advisors, uh, Sil Mishla and Stan Farmer. Uh, and we're going to be talking today about uh, international bonds, which is maybe something that uh, people haven't been thinking about of late, just because... Uh, you know, for the last couple of years, the interest rates in the rest of the world have not necessarily kept up with the United States, but things are changing. Uh, the ECB is starting to raise interest rates. Uh, emerging markets have become an a, appealing uh, place to, to, to move your money and so on and so forth. And so we're we're very uh, lucky to be joined by Tina Datia. Did I get that right? I think. Good. Uh, who is an executive uh, vice president at PIMCO. Uh, and she's also a uh, product specialist there. She works in in the London office, so uh, thanks for joining us. So a little bit later on a Friday afternoon, usually you'd be probably off to the off to the pub at, at this time of day, huh? Glorious sunshine today as well. For one. Oh, boy. Well, well, boy, we would have forgiven you for, for playing hooky. Uh, so uh, given given the way that, uh, you know, the, the, the um, weather is generally in London. Um, you know, you've been with PIMCO for about 20 years now, huh? Does it seem like that long? No, it doesn't. Um, well, fixed income markets have been uh, adventurous through that 20 years, whether it's the global financial crisis or here we had uh, the European financial crisis and lots of other things. And then obviously more recently with the Fed Fed raising rates. So it's been an exciting whirlwind of the time to to be at uh, somewhere like PIMCO, which is lives and breathes fixed income every day. So I feel very privileged to be able to do that. And and I've been in a couple of different offices. Uh, I have spent some time in the US in Newport Beach, but mo- most of the time I, I've been based here in London. To keep circling back to the weather, but I'd say Newport Beach, probably a little better weather than, than, than London. Yeah. Yeah. Little, well, they had the hurricane at the weekend, right? Well, you know, w- w- one week, you know, one one squall does not make a storm or something like that. You know, <laughs> one swallow does not make a summer. So, um, so uh, Sil, Stan, and I have uh, kind of come up with some some questions, and so, uh, Sil, why don't you kind of lead us off with sure. you know you had a, a kind of the big picture question, I think is yeah, and I think what's interesting about this topic is I think in general, international fixed income doesn't get a lot of attention with U.S. investors, right? I think, and especially with retail investors, we kind of have this idea that the, the bond market is, you know, treasuries and municipal bonds, and that's sort of the, uh, the, the extent of what fixed income is about. But it's a, it's a big world out there, and uh, there's a lot more to fixed income, and there, there are global markets as well that are really interesting. And so I think it's a good time to, uh, to talk about it a little bit. And Tina, I'd be curious to hear, so since you've been at PIMCO for a long time, how do you feel that the, the sort of the role of the international fixed income, international fixed income markets has kind of evolved over that period of time? Do you think it's become more important relative to the U.S. Um, as part of PIMCO's overall kind of thinking and strategy? And also, do, how, what's your assessment of just investor appetite? In, in general for global fixed income? So I, th- I think really good questions there. And I think if we start with that point of the importance of international 
fixed income markets and, and how that has evolved. Um, look, I think international markets have always been quite important to PIMCO on two levels. And the first one is that uh, even if uh, many years ago, most of PIMCO's business was in US fixed income, international forces will always have an impact on what's going on in uh, fixed income markets, what happens to the US economy and what happens to uh, yields as well as um, credit spreads uh, and the like. And that has only become much more important as emerging markets, uh, the likes of China have become much more important. You've had, of course, um, specific factors, uh, forces, uh, geopolitical occurrences, but also market events that have not been um, you know, originated from the US, but have had an impact on whether it's the US dollar or, or US yield curves. And then we've had truly global events like the pandemic and then the risk, um, the inflation that has followed that has been a really a global phenomenon. And understanding the speed uh, of that is really very key because what you've seen, of course, is that um, some markets have been much faster at um, moving and where inflation has reduced emerging markets is one of those where they were quite aggressive at raising rates and they seem to have got inflation in control much more. So, so you kind of need to understand that to kind of understand um, kind of where forces are going to drive. And then if you think about the other side and why international markets are important to, or international bonds even are important to PIMCO, we do have a pretty sizable uh, footprint of assets. So uh, as you know, we manage almost 1.7 trillion of assets under management. And we manage for lots of different clients globally, uh, both in the US, but also we have you know, a sizable uh, book of business in here in Europe, but also in Asia. And that has become a much bigger part of our business since I've been at PIMCO. And then in terms of the strategies that we offer clients, they have become more global in time. I'll tell you that for example, global fixed income, which I'm responsible for and international fixed income, we manage, um, you know, over a, over 100, 100 billion um, in size and we manage multi-regional and, and multi-sector mandates um, for clients around the world, as I mentioned, in US, as well as Asia and Europe. And definitely retail clients, particularly in the US, have... Um, started to reap and see the benefits of actually having that that international bond exposure and we can talk about that in a little bit more detail later and so if you were to can you help us kind of paint the landscape of what what international fixed income looks like in the same way that in the us you know we have treasuries we have uh, municipals and then we have mortgage-backed securities and things like that what are the key subsectors so to speak that you would look at that investors should consider when looking at international fixed income? Sure. So if we, we go one level up from that and we say, well, what is the size of the global fixed income market, including the US? It's, um, you know, 130 uh, trillion bond market in t terms of size. OK, so and if you think about how much is the US of that market, it's about a third of, of that market. So you think about the rest of the two thirds are in international uh, fixed income. And that is really split out in a very similar way to the one that you described. So you have developed markets, sovereigns, 
um, you know, be that European, UK, Japan, of course, is a very large issuer of, of government bonds, Asia and Australia, to name a few. And all of those typically are, um, you know, investment grade. So, you know, between A and, and AAA in terms of credit quality. And they do act, uh, you know, very similar to US treasuries. Uh, US treasuries still kind of do remain the most liquid. Uh, but, you know, these are, are pretty close in terms of liquidity and depth, depth of the market uh, there. Outside of government bonds, the other larger component is uh, maybe we'll touch on emerging markets. I've talked about developed markets, sovereigns. You also have the emerging market universe. And in emerging markets, you have two types of uh, bonds. You have those that are denominated in hard currency, so be that dollar or euro. Uh, so there they, they act more like um, a corporate bond uh, because that emerging market sovereign can't, of course, uh, isn't issuing that bond in its own currency. So, so it trades that are spread to treasuries. And then you have those bonds that are locally issued in local currency. And those bonds will have not just, you know, emerging market country risk and interest rate risk, but they will also have currency risk. So an international investor that is buying those bonds will need to think about the emerging market currency impact as well for those. So that's the, the sovereign market um, on the developed and the emerging market side. Outside of that, it's really quite similar to kind of what you've described. So the investment grade corporate market um, makes up those issuers that are both those that are based out of the US, but also multinational companies or US companies that choose, choose to issue Euro denominated debt or, or sometimes Japanese and denominated debt. And, and that can be quite an interesting opportunity because if you've got a particular company that you like, sometimes you find there is a yield advantage of buying um, in a slightly different currency denomination. Uh, global high yield markets, actually still, the issuance still remains quite dominated in a US dollar, but you do see about 20% of the high yield market being sort of Europe, uh, Europe based. Um, the others is, is pretty much the US and then there's about five to 10% coming out of Asia. The importance is when you've got all those components of the market, um, and, and I should have mentioned securitized as well. Now, securitized, I think, is a much bigger market in the US, particularly because of agency mortgages. But here in Europe, we have covered bonds, uh, for example, which are issued by German landers banks, which are, are pretty high in, in quality and tend to tend to provide a good relative value. And then we also have, you know, similar to, to what you have in the US, we have asset backed uh, security bonds and things like that. So, so very similar. Importantly, kind of when we are thinking about opportunities, what we've done is we've created sector specialty teams. Okay, so we will have a mortgage team or a credit team, and that team will be a global team. So we'll have individuals in the US and we'll have individuals in Europe. And those individuals will work very much together because it allows us to you know, look and find the best opportunities regardless of, of where the geographical location is. And it also allows us to generate sort of more relative value opportunities over time. So, so I would say international bonds are important, but I think you should really be viewing them quite holistically uh, in, in your portfolio because they are such a powerful tool and you should be sort of looking at the trade-off between those as, as you're allocating. You know, for our listeners at home, when, when Tina talks about global sovereigns, you know, you may have heard the term guilt, boond, 
those would be examples of, of global sovereigns that, that folks kind of look at. You had mentioned, you know, them being a powerful tool in uh, individual investors' portfolios. What are the, the, the kind of diversification benefits as you see them for individual investors using uh, a global bond, you know, allocation or sleeve in their in their portfolio. We know, for instance, you know, we work a lot with Americans outside of the United States. So one of the things we try to do is hedge against currency risk, and you know, global bonds are a good way to do that. But what other you know reasons are there for the diverse or what are the diversification benefits? I guess in short, you hit the nail on the head that for a U uh, a U.S. denominated based investor, especially those that are are living abroad, the that that is one of the I don't want to say free lunch because you do have to be careful when you use that, but pretty much, you know, you are getting the same yield or if not a better yield, hedging that currency. So removing that currency risk. So imagine you buy uh, a global fixed income allocation, um, you remove that currency risk. So you keep um, the dollar allocation and actually you can end up with uh, a yield advantage. So to just give you an example here, for the, your investors, if they're familiar with um, the US, the Bloomberg US Aggregate Index, today that's yielding about um, 520 basis points. If you compare that to the global XUS um, index, which is a similar index, hedged to dollars, uh, so no currency risk, uh, very similar credit quality, actually more government bonds in it, that is giving you a yield of five and a half percent or 550 basis points today. And if you look at the volatility, so the longer term sort of volatility of the asset class, you see that actually international bonds, once you hedge the currency risk, tend to have a lower volatility. For, so for US fixed income, volatility is, is around four. Um, and for international bonds, it's three to three and a half. Uh, so a little bit lower. So actually, you get um, a pretty good diversification benefit. And there's there's a, the, the reason for that is because um, global bond markets are not perfectly correlated. So um, what you find is um, economies and monetary policy moves at different speeds. And it's the power of that, even if it's a, a positive correlation, but any correlation that is not one allows you to have diversification in it. So adding international bonds in, in addition to your US bond allocation will lead you to a more efficient portfolio over time. So that's the diversification benefit. On that, I already mentioned that, you know, there are a couple of other reasons why I think international bonds are really attractive, particularly for US investors. One is just the fact it's a bigger investment universe. By only looking at the US, you are missing out on two thirds of the investment universe. Uh, and, and so we think that always having a broader opportunity set allows you um, to get a bit better risk and reward over time. And thirdly, uh, and this is kind of related to that point that global bond markets don't always move at the same speed. From one year to another, you don't know which global bond market is going to have the best return. And again, so building a portfolio over time that has um, a combination of different regions and sectors allows you to capture those um, economy, the, those markets that are doing better. And it also means that over time you can make relative value decisions. So if, for example, more recently we've seen interest rates rise quite dramatically in the US, 
they have not in the last month risen as much in other parts of the world. And so those parts have done a little bit better. And that just allows you to capture that, that relative value difference um, from month to month and, and year to year. Tina, um, I think uh, when I think about the diversification benefits of of bonds, I think about the Great Recession and and uh, how well sovereigns did. It's obviously um, a risk off asset, if you will. So when people are are puking their stocks, they're uh, they're going to bonds for protection, right? Um, and then I think about what happened in this in this more recent bear market and. Uh, We've likened it when discussing it with uh, clients as kind of a routine bear market for stocks that you can expect every so often, but more like a 100-year flood for U.S. Treasuries because I think it was the worst U.S. bond market at least uh, since the 1800s. I'm wondering now that interest rates have kind of normalized, and you mentioned that that, uh, internationally the, the rising rates have really subdued here uh what's your assessment of the of the current interest and appetite for international bonds in particular and is uh, are are you seeing more of an appetite to go out a little further on the curve rather than being very short term and conservative I mean uh, last year of course 2022 was a difficult environment for all fixed income investors whether they were in the US or um, or, or if they were in other uh, global fixed income markets and you saw yields rise across almost every sector except for Japan, uh, where yields did not rise. Where we are in that cycle right now is one where um, we are already seeing inflation uh, coming off the peaks that it was, um, and you have seen inflation moderating, and central banks are moving to being much more dependent in their in their analysis, uh, which means that level of yields, while they might be still a little bit volatile from here, from where we were talking, where you were talking about that, you know, hundred year flood or whatever, we're definitely out of the woods there. So we're not going to see another three, 400 basis point move in yields um, from here. We think we are, you know, closer to that topper end of the range and we feel very constructive about fixed income. And then I suppose to your question on international fixed income, it's a very similar story, whether you look uh, at European yields or, or whether you look at UK yields, Europe is a little bit behind the curve. So they may do one or two more, um, interest rate hikes uh, above that. Uh, the UK yields are already above US yields. Uh, and Japan is, you know, un, uh, they, they've had a much more dovish stance for a while, but their yields are also uh, rising. But the important thing is once you hedge that yield back, you are getting a very attractive, you know, overall yield for, for very little actual risk right now. So, um, you know, like I said, three to four percent volatility. You're talking about, um, you know, over five percent, five hundred and fifty basis points of actual yield. And actually, you can get more than that um, if you are willing to uh, add a little bit of spread risk and also, um, you know, over time uh, go active. So active alpha will give you, you know, will give you a yield of about, uh, an active fund would probably give you a yield of about 6% right now. And that's something that's that's investment grade 
in style. So, so that's kind of where it is. And we think that opportunity is kind of very attractive, whether you're looking at international or US fixed income. But I think the, the advantage of international is it is allowing you to still play that relative value view. So even if you're not very confident in the direction of yield, you can still be, um, you know, you can overweight uh, one country and underweight another country to then still have a relatively neutral overall interest rate position. Your question on have investors started going further out the curve, I think is, is an interesting one because obviously we've had yield curves where the very front end of the yield curve um, has been uh, higher because uh, central banks obviously have ra raised rates and the longer dated bond yields, while they've risen, they've not risen as much. Uh, now, what we would say is, is that why are investors looking to add more duration and go a little bit further out the curve? It's more not just because of the yield, but because they want the diversification property of bonds, because where we are in that business cycle, the fact that um, equity markets and risk markets generally are pretty much priced for perfection in terms of the economic outlook. Uh, what many investors are looking to do is add duration to their portfolio or interest rate risk to their portfolio, because that will provide resiliency if, um, if there is a recession. That's so, a great explanation. Thank you. Uh, so Syl is our, our resident uh, CFA and reads the, the PIMCO uh, white papers and so on. And he has a couple of questions on a, a recent piece that you guys did on the yeah, no, aftershock economy. And, yeah. and it kind of dovetails with my interest in where is the, the U.S. dollar headed, I think, as well. So Yeah, and obviously we can't really talk about bonds without without talking about currency a little bit. And, and I was I was reading uh, this report from PIMCO called The Aftershock Economy, which I thought was quite interesting. And one point that, uh, PIMCO, you were making in, uh, uh, in the report was that you expect the U.S. dollar to retain its place as the world global reserve currency, right? And I, th I thought that was an important point to make because there's a lot of talk about de-dollarization and all of that. And, you know, obviously I think, and I have my views on the dollars and we all kind of have our own perspective, but I do think that some of the talk about de-dollarization is a little bit overdone and maybe kind of uh, doesn't fully appreciate how entrenched the dollar is as a global reserve currency. Um, but also in the report, PIMCO highlights that there are opportunities outside of, you know, the main core U.S. and U.S. dollar markets. And so I'd love to, uh, to talk about those opportunities a little bit. And in particular, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on emerging markets. Um, and, and also China a little bit, because I think there's a Every few years, there's like a doom, doomsday story about China. And certainly, uh, currently, there's a lot of noise about what's happening in uh, Chinese real estate with developers getting in trouble um, and the economy slowing down. At the same time, you know, if you look at Chinese bank stocks or even look at Chinese yields, there's no real signs of panic just yet. Um, so I'd be curious to hear whether you think you know, given your global outlook, whether emerging markets are part of that opportunities, opportunity in fixed income outside the U.S. And if you think there's a risk in terms of what's happening in China and the risk that that would spill over into you know other parts of the EM world. 
the US will retain its global reserve currency status. And one of the reasons for that um, is uh, because it is so entrenched and because, uh, and you'll have to forgive me for saying this, there is no alternative. So Tina, of course, <laughs> um, uh, you know, you, you have a situation where there was, of course, a lot of talk about, well, would China uh, diversify their reserves? And I think, you know, there is an argument that over a super secular horizon, and you had um, obviously the BRICS summit in the last week or so, and actually they did also, uh, they're, they're, the conclusion from that is the dollar sort of is still going to be the reserve currency for quite some time. It doesn't mean you're not going to see emerging markets wanting to trade in their own currencies with each other. Um, but that requires, um, you know, some level of trust, and and it's something that will be required to happen slowly, and and there will be kind of disruptions and and volatility on the way. So so we would expect um, dollar to retain its reserve currency status. That doesn't mean that you're not going to have periods of dollar strength and dollar weakness. And we've been through a period of dollar strength, of course. And we would look at our valuation models and say that versus some currencies, we think that the dollar is probably due a repricing, um, given obviously why did we see the dollar go up so much because of hawkish Fed and the Fed being pretty quick at moving. Uh, but now you can see that, you know, there is some, for example, resiliency in the Japanese economy um, and, and and the U.S. Is, 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 you know, probably at an inflection point in terms of its rate move. Um, and so therefore you could see an environment where you do see some adjustment in dollar value, but that, that does not mean de-dollarization at all. It just means uh, sort of adjustment as you would expect over a cyclical time frame. But I think related to that, and I think a more interesting point is the point on China and the fact that before we talk about China and the economy, what we talked about in our secular discussion is China and, and the potential geopolitical risks that kind of pertain. And one sort of theme related to that is the fact that our expectation is that there will continue to be supply chain diversification away from China. And what will you get then? You will get certain emerging market countries benefiting from that, be that nearshoring. So, you know, you can think of, say, Mexico and others where corporates would rather have their supply chain a little bit closer to home or friendshoring. And India would be one of those countries that would be a beneficiary from um, friendshoring if, if, um, if geopolitical risks remain elevated. So I think there are lots of interesting things going on in currency. And, and the way that we've structured our portfolios is partly that theme around you know, some repricing around the dollar in the cyclical time frame. So a little bit underweight dollar relative to a basket of currencies where we think there's value. And then some also integrating some small secular themes, but we keep those, those positions fairly small. Uh, so that's the bit on the dollar. Would you like me to, to move to the China piece next or emerging markets? Yeah, just a couple of minutes on China would be, would be great to hear your thoughts. Sure, so, so if you think about um, China, uh, obviously, I think you, you've made the points already is that, you know, that 5% growth target is, is of course, at risk. Um, it's been dragged by a weaker than expected property market. So far, what we've seen is the government is not in all in mode. And that's why we're kind of continuing to see this level of volatility. What has been the case is they've relied on a little bit more of a micro approach um, to patch the economy. 
And so what we would say is that without some additional stimulus, it would actually be difficult to even achieve that 5% target. And, and the market looks, looks like it's worried about that. Now, that's not our baseline. We think that the government will make an effort to defend that growth target. We think that fiscal support to infrastructure will be sort of part of the, the front line. And we think there is definitely space for, for further policy action. Now, so we would think that there is a chance that there's a reasonable dissent from going from five to four and a half, but part of it will be, you know, uh, cutting the tail on on the housing market and creating a bit more stability around that, which which will have to come from from the fiscal side. And then related to that, and a question around contagion. Um, now, what we have sort of the downside there is, um, you know, our view was one that emerging market countries would have benefited from the China reopening. And there was, of course, a, a reasonably bit, bit of a bounce, but that has gone away. And so those countries that are sort of closer to China uh, would probably see some spillover effects from that downside. That doesn't mean they need to fall into recession. Many of those countries you know, do have resiliency themselves. But we would be a little bit more cautious, you know, on some of those emerging markets because of because of the China, the China um, issue and the China slowdown. So if you think about um, EM Asia, what we would say is that there is, you know, the geopolitical tensions and we 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 sort of are concerned that, you know, because growth has taken a little bit of a a backseat right now that 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 could reduce um, some of that investment. But we think the longer term themes are very strong for for that part of the market. So that's a little bit on China. Uh, would you like me to cover emerging markets or would you like to shift to something else? Yeah, a couple of minutes on emerging markets yeah, would be great. Yeah. Sure. Um, so over and above kind of what we've talked about in China, we are actually quite constructive on emerging markets. Now, we would say that, um, and many of your investors will know this, that of course, that emerging markets has had a pretty great rally um, and, and has been one of the areas that has performed very well. Uh, we think that there are sort of opportunities because of where we are in that cycle um, in the asset class, but we think that you have to be conscious of the fact that if you are gonna go into a US slowdown event, that there could be some um, uh, you know, some spillover from, from a slowdown. So I think on, on one side, I think, you know, there is a, a, a definitely opportunity and we think that um, certain asset classes will provide you with actually a pretty attractive yield. But what we would say is that um, we would be focused on those countries where they've, they've made progress on their headline in, uh, inflation, where they've been, you know, more focused on on growth, um, and so we would be sort of up in quality there. Um, generally, now what you have seen, of course, is in the hard currency space, the news has been dominated by certain frontier countries that have um, defaulted at the first half of this year, um, and that you know can cause volatility. But so far that doesn't seem to have spilled over into the general emerging markets, um, emerging market sector. So we think within, you know, within a, within a asset allocation and a portfolio for a longer term investor, there definitely is good opportunity, right? Just, just one quick thing, because I, you know, I know that, that, that 
you're more than just a in the in the fixed income business. You are one of the the people at Pimpco that are specifically, um, shall we say, one of your expertise is, is in the the environmental, social, and governments or ESG uh, investing uh, in the fixed income segment. I wonder if you could give us just a, a brief your brief thoughts on the role of ESG in fixed income investing and how it works. Like, uh, how do you screen for ESG in the bond market? How does it differ from stock market? It's a great question, Sam. Um, so yeah, I, I do cover ESG as part of my um, responsibilities. When we think about ESG, um, we are talking about understanding those environmental, social and governance risks when we are making decisions on allocating to a company. So it's understanding, for example, if you have a particular company and they um, uh, they have, uh, you know, uh, problems with their labor force because they're not um, uh, they're not conducting things with best practice. They don't have great health and safety records that they could be, um, you know, subject to lawsuits and fines. So you should be taking that into account when you are um, deciding whether to, uh, you know, dis- deciding whether to to buy. Now, that doesn't mean you you don't ha- you, that you wouldn't buy, but you would need to adjust that in your risk and return to make sure that you are you are being um, adequately compensated. Another example could be, um, for example, a medical company or a pharmaceutical company who's subject to a number of lawsuits uh, because they have not had, um, you know, they, they have not done a great job with their their governance um, and, and the way that they and, and issues they've had around, um, you know, some of the drugs that they've had, you know, other areas you might be looking at is, for example, in the auto sector, um, particularly in Europe, for example, where there have been these commitments, um, particularly even in the UK, to transition to electric cars over over a longer period. So understanding those auto companies and what their plans are um, and making sure that you understand that. So the idea is, is you integrate these factors, these more longer term factors into your analysis um, a- and decide whether you know, the return or the risk needs to be adjusted. Uh, so that's kind of what what we would do in our standard portfolios. We do have, you know, more sustainable solutions which go further for clients that are looking for 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 more than that. But in in as part of fixed income, you want to sort of do this analysis just to get a full picture of the company and understand what their sort of longer term plans are. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thanks for that answer. And thanks for all of your answers and, and your time today, Tina. We, we really appreciate it. Um, been very informative for all of us and we hope for our listeners as well. And hopefully, um, you know, I- interest in the international bond market continues to increase as, as you know, uh, the U.S. Central Bank, you know, slows down its rate, rate hikes and investors, I think, start to feel a little bit more comfortable in the, in the way the market is going. But um, uh, Stan, this is the point where you recommend everybody uh, smash the like button and well, subscribe. I mean, yeah, I, 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 I think I think if you if you enjoy the the uh, the diversification and, and, and quality of the information that we present on this uh, this channel, uh, give us your comments and certainly like and subscribe to the channel. Thanks again, Tina, and thanks to, to all of you for for listening. And we'll be back uh, soon, hopefully. 
Walkner Cotton Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Registration with the SEC does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The opinions expressed by the participants of this podcast are their own and do not reflect the opinions of Walkner Cotton Financial Advisors. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. Thanks for listening, and for further information, please visit walknercondon.com.